What? I do. All right. Well, I don't know if we have enough room for all of us to cram on one side or the other, but if you'd like, maybe let's see if we could put us all in one spot so I don't have to uh, be quite as loud. Um, as a public speaker, I am often in rooms where I have to li literally fill the room uh, with my voice. Meanwhile, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and I'll also hand it out. By the way, I found an extra one. That's for you. Um, if you need something to write on, we can do that. So it's always kind of fun to come to a new book of the New Testament to study together. Uh, when you look at your Bible, it says the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. Paul did not number his letters. In other words, in the Greek, it simply says to the Thessalonians. There happens to be two of them, so we have to number them, number one and number two. Uh, for all we know, there were 25 of them, uh, but these are the two that we have. To <clears throat> give you a little backup, just to put it in context, we had in chronology, three months ago, Paul was in Thessalonica. He was there uh, to open up the church in, in that area. He had gone to the synagogue. He's been there at least three weeks that we know of, uh, possibly longer, and ended up getting run out of town on a rail, uh, to use a, uh, a euphemism. Uh, <clears throat> from there, he went to Berea, which we talked about last week at length, where he was welcomed <clears throat> with open arms briefly. And then he had to be run out on the rails at night. They got him out and put him on a boat to Athens. He left uh, Silas and Timothy behind and then asked for them to join him in Athens, which they did. And then he was in Athens a brief time, which we will look at when we come back to Acts after we've done Thessalonians. But <clears throat> he then went over to Corinth. And if you have a map, you can see where it's all kind of down in the south part of Greece. So we're three months later, and Paul had begun to hear things about the Thessalonica church, and he was concerned. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we find in verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. He sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Then in verse 6 of chapter 3, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us a good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. Timothy has come back and reported to Paul. Things are going really well in this church. And thus, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. That's the background. 
Now the very first words that you see are Paul, Savannah, and Timothy in the letter. Now normally you look at that and go, okay, so what's the big deal? These are the three guys that are talking. We, we get that. What's unique? See if you can pick, pick, pick it out. What is unique about this opening statement? Paul? What? Nothing. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in every other letter that he wrote that we have in the New Testament, except for the Thessalonians and the Philippians. All the other letters. Isn't that interesting? I mean, even Galatians, which was written before this, he opens up, Paul, an apostle of Christ, which suggests there was a question in all the other locations of his authority. And he was establishing it. But Thessalonians, I hate that word. <laughs> the Thessas, what are, how do we abbreviate this? Anyway, <clears throat> the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, the Lonians, there we go. <laughs> Um, they didn't have a problem with this, apparently. John Calvin wrote it this way. He said, this is proof that those to whom he is writing had no reluctance in recognizing him for who, for who he was. There's no question. Also, if you look at the book of Philippians and the two letters to the Thessalonians, Paul is very effusive in his love for this, these churches and the reciprocal love that they show him. There is a, uh, I wouldn't say an absence, but there is a definite lack of controversy in these letters that you find in some of the others, like Romans, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians. You just find other things that are a little more challenging, whereas this is not necessarily found here. So that's a little interesting little tidbit that Paul doesn't identify himself as an apostle here. Doesn't need to. So who is Silvanus? He's Silas. This is Silas. It's interesting. Only Luke calls him Silas. Paul always calls him Silvanus whenever he's named. Why? Well, who knows? Maybe uh, I mean, they say that Silvanus is the Roman or the Latin uh, expression of the name, and Silas may have been a Greek or even abbreviation of his name, a nickname of sorts. But he calls him Silvanus, and you can see this in other places in uh, in the uh, in the letters of Paul. And then, of course, we have Timothy. I thought it was interesting. It, it never quite dawned on me until I, I, I looked at this and thought, "Wait, Timothy shows up." in every one of Paul's letters, except two of them. He's named in every one of Paul's letters except two. Any idea which those two are? And it's not First and Second Timothy. Uh, <laughs> so which are the two? And you, if you were just to hazard a guess, which two is he not named in? Hmm? I didn't hear you. I said Romans, but I No, no, he's in Romans. Anybody? Titus? Hmm? Titus? No, he's named in Titus, believe it or not. 
It's uh, Galatians and Ephesians. But he's named in all the others. But usually just a na- it's in a list of names. You can find Timothy. And we're assuming it's the same Timothy. It may not have been. I mean, I mean that would have been like saying Bob. I mean, Timothy wasn't exactly an unusual name. So there may have been more than one Timothy floating around. But just one of those trivia things that you're not going to hear in a sermon, but you can have in a Bible study. Because <laughs> it's just kind of interesting. <clears throat> so, we come to the text itself. To the ecclesia, the church, not the synagogue. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur pulled out one very interesting little tidbit in the phraseology here. Notice it doesn't say, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one preposition there, to cover both God and Jesus. Thereby implying that they are equal. There's no separation between the two. This is a unified concept that we have God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a few verses later, he talks about the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is complete and expressed in these opening opening lines. And then the title, Lord Jesus Christ. One one person said, it's interesting, um, I think it was Ray Stedman said that in this half verse here, Paul identifies his, their physical address and their spiritual address. Their physical address is Thessalonians. Their spiritual address is in God and Jesus. I thought that was interesting because I was thinking about how contracts are written. You have, um, often, you will have the entity in and then the physical address. Is it the, it's the opening line of a contract so that we can know that in case there are two entities with the same name, one of them is at this location, the other one's a different one, just in case. So there's a secondary identification. Here, the physical address is Thessalonica, and their spiritual address is in God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a full title. It's not a euphemism. He's not just uh, speaking, overstating things. You have to look at it in two ways. God in his inspiration of scripture is helping us see things. Paul in his testimony is very intentional with every word he writes. He isn't just, "Eh, Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, like we might do if we were just trying to be spiritual. He's trying to make a statement. Because remember, This church is three months old. If we were to put it in our current uh, uh, calendar, that means this church church was born at Thanksgiving just three months ago. That's how new they are. They probably don't have a pastor per se Uh, they're working together in a highly pagan city with Jews that are very 
uh, aggravated that they've converted and started this church. If you remember, the men from Thessalonica who didn't like Paul went to Berea, 50 miles away, to getting kicked out of that city. So they are fresh, they're new. So to say something like the title of the Lord Jesus Christ is a very intentional statement. The word Lord, that's the ruler. That is the one you follow. That is a, you don't call someone Lord unless you are really truly subservient to them. We have this, uh, the idea of the deity of Christ is mentioned, is suggested even here. It's the one to whom we owe an allegiance. Then Jesus, we all talk, you know, he's talked about who Jesus is, but then he uses the title Christ, the Messiah. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. He's making a statement, a grand statement. Henrietta Mears made an interesting observation about this early church. She said that Paul's successes in Thessalonica are not the norm for most missionaries. (laughs) We have some who've been on the mission field and they can say, you don't usually have a church in three months be this amazing. It's truly a work of God. And she said, for example, Carrie in India, Judson in Burma, Morrison in China, and Moffat in Africa each waited seven years for their first convert. Paul probably had one on the first day. And then it exploded from there. But here, the Holy Spirit allowed Paul to reap a sudden and extensive harvest. Fascinating. We, we don't think about that when we think of the church of Thessalonica. We just think, oh, yeah, there was a church there. and Paul wrote a letter. and yeah, We don't read it very often because it's a small one. It's back in the back of the Bible. We like the bigger ones because they're more important. No. This is unique. Very interesting that we have this. Then he gives the typical grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. We'll see that over and over and over again. I found a little interesting... Uh, tidbit, which I had not come across before um, in Greek. Of course, we know what the word for peace in Hebrew is, right? Shalom. So he's basically saying peace, meaning shalom to these people. But he's also saying grace, which is yeah, the Greek word charis. But there is another very similar Greek word, karine, which means hello. It's not uncommon for people to greet one another with karin, and he says charis. Very simple, very, very similar, but one has a deeper Meaning, you know, God's favor is in the idea of charis. Of course, I was reminded technically then he's saying hello and goodbye in the same thing. He's saying hello in Greek and goodbye in, in, in Hebrew, you know. Uh, uh, charis and shalom. <laughs> uh, 
which reminds me of Hawaii, where I went to high school. You have what word? Aloha, it means both hello and goodbye. Uh, it can be very confusing when you're first there and you don't know that. Someone says, aloha, you're like, hey, how you doing? And then they leave and you're going, why are they saying hello when they're leaving? I don't get it. Anyway, that was very confusing at first. So we get into the, the meat of the text. What I'd like to do, I would like to just read the verses 2 through 10. Because we're going to be coming back at them in detail and showing some fascinating parallels. There's a structure in this that is extraordinary. But until you have the full overview, um, some of you may have read this ahead of time, maybe not, but let's just read it together. I'll read it out loud and, uh, and you can follow along. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God, to God from idols, to serving the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I have read so many different uh, interpretations or organizations of this text. Many point to verse 4 as the key verse. <coughs> For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why would that be a key verse? Why would they say that's the core of this whole thing? Any ideas? Well, the word chosen, as we see in the ESV, is technically the word elect. And many translations have it as, you are the elect. And the question comes up, how does he know that? Because he says, we know, beloved brothers, that you are elect. Huh, isn't that interesting? Um, let me put it this, let me put it another way. How do you know someone is a Christian if they claim to be one? By the fruit? Because people say it. In fact, 83% in the Gallup poll says they're Christians. In America. 
Really? That, okay. You know, you can get in a group of people and say, oh, how many of your kids? They'll, they'll raise their hand. Oh, yeah, sure. I went to church once. Or my dad was a Christian. Or, yeah, I grew up in something. One preacher found an article, and I could not find the original essay. I tried. Um, but this was his quote. Uh, so the pastor isn't saying it, but it was in an essay about those who identify as Christians. He said, we accept as Christian any individual or group who devoutly, thoughtfully, seriously, and prayerfully regards themselves to be Christians, including the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, conservative, mainline, liberal Christian faith groups, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and a thousand or so other religious organizations that identify themselves as Christian. Also included are those who consider themselves to be Christian even though they do not identify themselves with any particular religious group. As the pastor says, the writer of the essay acknowledges the reality that by making the definition so broad, they virtually emptied it of any meaning at all. You are a Christian if you say you're one. But they say, since there's no consensus on what the word means, they have no other choice. You're in, even if someone else says you're out. Now, isn't that a problem or a challenge? And you might say, well, all of us in this room, we're Christians, and the people down at that church are not. Because that's how we tend to identify with our people group, with our to use the marketing term, our tribe. Paul says, we know you are elect. You are chosen. Now, I was going to try, <laughs> which uh, I realized very quickly was going to be way bigger than I could handle. I was going to try to define elect. Huh. That's like a 13-week course. Um, five hours each day for 13 weeks for us to try to uh, ascertain and to figure out what it means to be elect. Because there's so many verses. And it's a controversial, I shouldn't say controversial. It's an important doctrine, but one that takes great care to make sure you articulate it correctly. The best quote I found, and I found a couple of them, was from John Stott, who actually wrote on this passage these paragraphs. To whatever denomination or tradition we may belong, the doctrine of election causes us difficulties and questions. To be sure, it is a truth that runs throughout Scripture, beginning with God's call to Abraham. Moreover, the topic of election is nearly always introduced for a practical purpose in order to foster assurance, holiness, and hum humility and a witness, not presumption, moral apathy, pride, or laziness. But no explanation of God's election is given except for God's love. Here, then, is Paul three. three Paul's threefold delineation of the church, which you find in verses in verse three. 
It's a community beloved and chosen by God, rooted in God and drawn its life from Him, exhibiting a faith which works, a love which labors, and a hope which endures. What stands out of Paul's vision of the church is its God-centeredness. He doesn't think of it as a human institution, but a divine society. So what we have here, rather than trying to figure out the, the details of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we'll do that later when we study Romans and some of the other passages. But for right now, Paul is identifying these people as part of God's elect in the church. They were chosen by God. That doesn't mean God didn't choose others. That doesn't mean all of that other hullabaloo that goes on, goes on when you're trying to figure out, well, does God pick some and not pick others, and isn't that unfair? That's not the issue here. The issue is God, Paul has realized that these people are special in God's eyes, as are all Christians. But they exhibit three things. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. So let's look at those in order, because it really opens up this entire section of Scripture. This triad, what are the three key words in the triad? Faith, hope, and love. And as I wrote here, we talk about those almost as if they're invisible. They're nice things. And we think of the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I don't dare try to do it by memory, but I probably could. 13.13, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Yeah, that's very common. We, we hear that all the time at weddings and uh, other, other places like that. But it's also found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. You have here, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision account for anything, but only faith working through love. Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this we have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. We have the idea of faith, hope, and love in Paul's writings. But this is the first time we've seen it, technically. I mean, Galatians, you could say Galatians was, but in a triad like this, it's the first time. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. The work of faith is found in the following verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The work of faith is found in verse 5 and verse 9. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. 
For they themselves report concerning us that the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, you were converted to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The labor of love is found also in verses 5 and verses 6 through 8. You have, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you became an example to all the believers. And it goes on beyond that. And the steadfastness of hope is found in verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You also have three different books of the New Testament that speak to each one of these. The work of faith you can find in the book of James. Faith that works. That is an expression of the faith. As, as Calvin wrote, faith alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. I'll say that again. Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. This idea that, you know, when we, we were contrasting the book of Galatians, was talking about faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. You can't add anything to it. You can't add circumcision to it. You can't add works to it. And then James comes along and says, but faith without works is dead. And you're kind of confused. Well, wait, which is it? Well, it's the same coin, but two sides of it. One's looking at it from one direction. One's looking at it from the other. And it's saying the same thing. It goes back to this question of how do you know someone's a Christian? And you said by their fruits. Okay. So someone says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Really? Okay. Well, how do you live your life? How do you express that? And someone might say, but then you're being all judgy. Because then you're saying, well, this is how you are Christian. It means you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls that do. And if you do, well, then obviously you're not a Christian. No, that is not what we're trying to say. I still remember watching a, an interview one, one year when Larry King was still very popular and big time, he had three preachers on his show live. It was T.D. Jakes, um, Joel Osteen, and Tim LaHaye. The three of them. And Larry King was typical Larry King. He was trying to stir up controversy in his questioning. He kept bringing up all sorts of social issues and finally, T.D. Jake says, Larry, you keep asking us what we're against, and you've never asked us what we're for. We are for, and he just went, and man, he, you know, as only T.D. Jakes could do, they had to cut him off for a commercial break. I mean, <laughs> he just, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And it, there was, you couldn't interrupt him either. Because there was all this wonderful, glorious, marvelous things. He said, this is what we are. This is who we are. And you know what? You're po poking at all these other things that we are against. Well, we, yes, we are against that. But that doesn't mean we're bad. So you're, try you're changing what the gospel is when you're doing this. And so we have, like, what was it, three weeks ago when um, Lady Gaga came out and says, well, I'm a Christian. 
but Mike Pence is an absolute jerk person for his position on homosexuality. And I went, my first, my first reaction was, you are? Really? Okay, that's interesting. Um, I'd never heard that before. That was a new one to me. And I thought, well, why would I have made that judgment as a human being? Granted, we cannot judge the soul, but you can judge the works. You can judge their, what they present and how they present themselves in the world. So we get back to this question here. He sees these people, this small church, getting, getting itself started. And he sees and he's heard of their work of faith. They have turned from idols. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but I looked at the verse 10 where it says they turned to idols. Uh, I found this list of all the idols mentioned in Scripture by name. Adramelech, Anamelech, Ashima, Ashtoreth, Baal, Baal Berith, Baal Peor, Baalzebub, Baal Zephon, Bel, Shemesh, Chuin, Dagon, Diana, Huzzab, Jupiter, Mercury, Moloch, Merodach, Nurgle, Nebo, Nibhaz, Nisroch, Refham, Rimmon, Succubanoth, and Tamas are all mentioned by name in our scripture identifying idols and other gods that people have worshipped both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I, I didn't write it down, but I was actually just kind of thinking through um, what would be some modern gods that we would identify today. Let's see. The U.S. dollar. Facebook. Twitter. I mean, you can just start going through all these things. They become our idols. And these people have turned away from it. Uh, I have the privilege on uh, being on the board of uh, the Harvest Foundation uh, with Bob Moffat and his ministry. And last Friday we had a meeting and there was a, a gentleman there who came to us to present some materials and some work that he's been doing as part of the, uh, part of the, um, the mission. And he's originally from Nepal. His name is uh, Bim Bimish. Anyway, very unusual name, obviously a Hindu name. Indian name. And he very, very specifically, he said, when I was young, I worshipped all of the idols, all of them, until Jesus took hold of my heart, and I only worship him now. And I just thought, oh, it's not very often we walk into a room and you talk to someone who will say, I worshipped all of them. From another culture, you might say, well, okay, but it was dramatic and here he is trying to minister in these countries of Nepal and India and others with Jesus Christ and he said yeah um, we really can't do it very publicly because it's against the law to be a Christian there and uh, I might not come home one day our persecuted brethren up here <laughs> oh kind of this deep breath
your work of faith has made you turn away from those things that were there before. In a town like Thessalonica that was full of idols on every corner, they were really very much like Athens. We read about the Athens story with the Mars Hill, but Thessalonica had the same problem. Remember, they were the second largest city in the, in the country. They were also a port. And they were on the main road, the Ignatian Way, that went across all Greece, all the way over into Istanbul. Today's Istanbul. Back then it was Byzantium. Um, <clears throat> they were a hub. Everybody brought their gods with them. It's like in Arizona. Everybody's brought their own flora and fauna from other states. And suddenly we have allergy problems. Because people used to come here to get away from them. Sorry, you can't get away from it now. It's in your backyard. Anyway. Then the labor of love. That is the Greek word agape. It's not phileo, it's not eros, it's agape. The labor of love. Only found in God. If you want a book of the Bible to talk about the labor of love, you go to 1 John. Loving one another. As I was thinking through this, I said, you know, to love one another takes effort. You have to work at it. Otherwise, it's just casual chit-chat. But to actually love and to show it as labor? This is not the play of love. This is not the casual of love. This is the labor of love. They worked at loving each other. Try to imagine. I mean, I'm making this completely up. But think of it. Could it be that there were two very strong men in the city who used to be competitors in their business and now they're in this church together and they used to go to war euphemistic war over business and now they are exhibiting love towards one another that's very possible very possible It changes everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work of the Lord is not in vain. It builds the kingdom. It creates the testimony which we see later on. Then in verse, uh, the last part, the steadfastness of hope. If you want a book of the Bible to read about hope, or in the, especially in trials, you read First Peter. But this steadfastness of hope is an interesting idea, especially when it's connected to this idea of Jesus' second coming. Because we find in this book of Second Thessalonians that the church there was afraid that Jesus had already come back. And they missed it. And so Paul is writing that second letter to talk about that a little bit more, to instruct them a little bit. This steadfastness of hope in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty, remember they're in a persecuted city, 
that does not like what they're doing, and yet they are maintaining, they are continuing their hope. Jerry Bridges made, uh, well, I'll write the Greek word up here. Hupomene. You have hupomene, meaning under-abide. So you abide under, or you stay under. You are waiting and hoping in anticipation of something great to come. This steadfastness of hope, this perseverance. Jerry Bridges made an interesting observation. He distinguishes between endurance and perseverance. The Greek word hupomene is translated three ways. Actually, you could have it four, depending on your Bible translation. It's steadfastness, which we see, perseverance, three ways, and endurance. It's the same word all three times that you see it in the English text. But Jerry Bridges brought out the point, he said, there's actually a difference between endurance and perseverance. Endurance is the ability to stand up under adversity, and perseverance is the ability to grow during it. I thought, that's interesting. It's a slight change, but you can see the nuance there. When God allows trials to come into our lives, physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, they all come at you and make you doubt His sovereignty every time. And that is the devil's work. And here you have these people are resolute to stick with it no matter what. You know, one, one uh, it was John Piper, he wrote this. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, I would like to hear something like this from our pulpit someday. Because um, <clears throat> he's challenging his ch- church with this statement. I have a question to ask you this morning. How do you keep on going on the path of obedience to Christ? Say, in some relationship or in some ministry. How do you keep going month after month, for years or even decades, when there are emotional, relational, spiritual, and financial obstacles? When the normal human encouragements evaporate and you feel forgotten? What does it take to hang in there when the glamour is gone? The limelight, you know, is terribly fickle. It moves from ministry to ministry inside the local church. For a while, it's on the music ministry. And then there's a special focus on Christian education. And then comes Missions Week. And being a world Christian and going across cultures is a glorious thing. Then the international student ministry stands out. And then urban ministries. And then small groups. And then the ministry of prayer. And the thrill of being a praying church with teams praying through every service and every morning of the week. And then the limelight moves on. And focuses on another ministry. Which looks bright and exciting. And that ministry picks up people and there's a sense of thrill and joy and camaraderie and power. And then the limelight moves on. And gradually, no one seems to be talking about your ministry anymore. As it doesn't turn up in the in-touch as often. He didn't say the in-touch, but he used his newsletter. Recruits aren't called from the pulpit. And other things seem to be getting people excited now. 
Does God mean then for ministries to flourish only when they're in the limelight? Does he want dynamic ministries of music and education and missions and students and urban concerns and prayer only when they have the limelight of churchwide attention? The answer is clearly no. What's needed is steadfastness, endurance. So if you're called to a ministry, whatever it is, and I, I, I know you, you don't, you know this, but I think it's an encouragement to us who work at something and don't get recognition. So, literally, so, so what? What are you doing it for? You're doing it for yourself? You're doing it so the pastor will bring you up to the, the, the front of the church and say, look how marvelous this person is. No, you don't do it because of that. You do it because you're called to it, because you love it. And you feel that this is something that you can do. You can be a servant in the church. The labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Verse 5. We've kind of talked about the big picture, and I'm just going to go through the rest of the passage a little, a little more detail, find some interesting little tidbits for you. It says, because our gospel came to you, stop. Our? Our gospel? Did Paul invent it? Is he claiming it here? I mean, what's he doing? What, what do you mean by our gospel? And, I mean, I came across one commentator who really tackled this and basically said, see, here's a point that Paul invented Christianity. He says, proof right here. He claims it. So how would you answer someone like that? How would you say, what does he mean when he says our? Yeah. He's talking in context in verse 1. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Uh -huh. So he's talking in plurality. So it's our gospel. And he's also and including the Thessalonian, Thessalonican church. Yeah. It's ours. It is the gospel of Christ. But we are now part of this. And we have to, you know, people like to pick at the scriptures. Unendingly. Um, in fact, Charles Spurgeon wrote to this <laughs> 150 years ago almost. The problem is man's gospel is popular enough. Someday he thinks until his head aches and he gets into nonsense. And then he comes and brings us forward as something fresh and new. Men go to the bottom of a subject until they stir the mud at the bottom and cannot see their own, own way. And no one else can see it either. And then forthwith they come out with something marvelous and having used some words that are hard to pronounce and harder to understand, they earn a cheap name for being great scholars and profound pastors. Well, let them go their own way. That is their gospel. 
But we have another that from another another gospel from that one which we have gained in another way and which we desire to propagate in another fashion. Paul is making a distinction between the gospel he is preaching and all the other gospels that are out there. We don't own the word gospel. Just a Greek word that means good news. There were others that were saying, this is the way. It was all the idols and all the other possibilities. And they were myriad. It was a way to control people and get them to give you money. And so there's all sorts of charlatans and, and those who are claiming that they have a special thing. You be in our, in, our, in our American culture, the American Christian culture, for so many years and seeing so many weird, weird ideas that come out. And they end up with a TV show. And you're sitting there going, what in the world are they talking about? How can they claim that? That is not scriptural. And yet, it's, a, it's something new, it's something special, something different. Um, I could come up with a bunch of examples, but we would end up spending the rest of our time talking about some really weird stuff that's out there, and that had, and continues to be. And they end up falling under the guise of the word revival. Because it's exciting, and a lot of people talk about it, and there seems to be a fresh way of the Spirit the problem is they're fads because they go away. This hasn't gone away. It's not a fad. It's the other things that has that. So when Paul says our gospel, our gospel he's meaning the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ as born to this world, suffered died and buried and rose again. Yeah. Well, the thing I always think when I'm reading this is, because, you know, the first time you read through, you go, R, you know, you, I mean, you, you, it kind of startles you. And then, I don't know why, but for all of those controlling years, um, it's been, right away, it's, for I bring you times of great joy, for unto you, hmm. so it's our gospel, unto you, it's born this day, and say, David, Savior, Christ the Lord. And it's ours, it was given to us, it's hmm. We can claim it. It has been given to us. For him to say our, it's not a I made it. It's a, um, it's a wonderful expression of the gospel in community. But the gospel came not only in word, which means they heard it, and it was spoken and written, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now, here's a fun little thing inside the Greek that we don't see in the English. Very rarely do we come across something like this. But the phrase with full, condi- full conviction, I'm not sure what the Greek word for with is, but there's a missing Greek word in the English translation. In the Greek, you see Sorry, let's pull up. L-L-E. 
It's pleurophoria. Pleurophoria means much conviction or much assurance or full assurance. Complete. The Greek word here is not trans, is not does not show up in English, and it's the word much. Now there's a reason why it isn't translated because that would be weird. You know, much full conviction would just be an awkward sentence. But he's basically saying a lot, a lot, much full. It is so full that it's much, meaning that these Thessalonians, when they heard the word, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the full conviction of the gospel came upon them. And we see the result. They then turn away from idols and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is really kind of cool, but it's missing in our English translation because it's just an awkward um, phraseology. The other problem we have in the English text, most translations, is the period at the end of the word conviction. It's, remember, there's no punctuation in the Greek. There is another missing word, except in the New American Standard. In the New American Standard, the very next word is the word kathos which means just as. So you can read that as one continuous sentence. Think about it, you know, just read it with me. Also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we provided to be among you. It's a emphasize, emphasis on the idea that their witness and their testimony was part of everything else. But in the ESV, it's, there's a period at the end of the sentence. In a lot of translations, there's a period, which makes sense. I mean, you read it in English and go, full conviction, boom. And then there's another thought. But in the Greek, there's a continuous idea here. It's one big thought. And you might go, well, why did they do it that way? Well, I don't know. Let's talk to the translator someday and figure out. The NASB does have just as. The NIV, ESV, RSV, others do not. Never forget that the ESV is actually an updated version of the old RSV. Never forget that. So they will often follow the, the RSV translator's choices in their choices here. Verse 6, you become imitators of us. The word imitators, it's not monkey see, monkey do. This isn't that kind of imitation. In fact, another Greek, fun Greek word for you. Is the Greek word mementes. Right? That's the word imitation. Do you see a word in that Greek word that you recognize? Mime. That's where we get the idea of the mime. It's the word imitate, mementes. Or to uh, pantomime, or even the mimeograph. 
is M-I-M-E. It's that Greek word, mimeograph, is to make a copy, is to imitate. But he's not saying just imitate us. It is a deeper meaning. It means to emulate um, with an interchange. It's not just an outward expression. It doesn't mean playing at church. It's meaning be church. Be like us and the Lord. And you receive the word in much affliction. That's the word tribulation. In difficult times. With joy. Huh. So that you can become a typos. T-Y-P-O-S. We like to write it as the word typo. Um, but that's the Greek word example. You become an example. You're a type. You're a type to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Think about it again. This is three months later. Three months later, they have been heard about throughout the entire country. Macedonians, the northern half. Achaia is the southern half of all of Greece in three months. You say, well, how? Remember? You have the Ignatian Way. means takes it across east-west. But also, they're a seaport, which meant every single boat left the port with a rumor of what's going on in Thessalonian or Thessalonica. They have news. They have what's happening. And the buzz in the city is not about the hot springs. It's not about the latest soccer match. It's about this church. And it's going everywhere. To the point, it has sounded forth in verse 8, and that's the Greek word echo, or a form of the word echo. It reverberated so much that they don't even need to say anything about it. Paul doesn't have to talk about it. Everyone else is. So this, when Timothy brought the report back to Corinth, this idea that the word is spreading everywhere is incredibly good news to him. Their reputation begins to precede them. So I want to end with an interesting little quote that I found. Let me find it here. Uh, I've got so many quotes. This is number 10 of today. Here it is, number 8. Looking at verses 1 through 10. Just think about this for a second. If you remember last week, we looked at the whole of Thessalonians as a doctrinal expression of all the great doctrines of the faith. But believe it or not, the first 10 verses does the same thing. Here how, how the guy expresses it. It's a remarkable testimony concerning the Thessalonians. One is impressed with the richness of the theology about God, His Son, and the Christian life. Concerning God, it indicates that He is a living person, is truly God, has a Son, raised Him from the dead, is the proper recipient of Christian service, and has wrath against sin. Concerning Jesus Christ, it indicates his dual nature as the God-man, his death and resurrection, by implication his ascension, 
his expected return from heaven, and his delivering of believers from wrath. Concerning the Christian life, it teaches the need for conversion as a break with past evil, and the Christian life is characterized of a life of serving God, and the Christian has a living hope of deliverance from the wrath of judgment through the returning Christ. In these ten verses, he has expressed everything. God, man, sin, salvation, how we are to live our life, how we are to be Christians in this world. In ten verses. Extraordinary. And when I first read this, I thought, how in the world am I going to fill an hour talking about it? Seriously, I went, I mean, my gosh, it's all right there. We can just read it and go, okay, that's good. We'll mail it in and kind of move on. But it's all here. All of the gospel is here. In such short, quick ways. And you have the, the triad being commented or expressed in the other verses. Of the faithing, the, the, the work of faith the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Your word is so rich. We can start at the surface and play in the the kiddie pool and be just fine. And it's wonderful. But when we start to dig deep, we realize there's depths, unmeasurable depth of what you have here. We could come back again next week and look at these verses again and find even more. Lord, only your word can do that. It is living, it is breathing, it is vibrant, and it is part of everything we are and who we are. We praise you and we thank you for that blessing. Bless us as we move into our our time of worship that we keep this in mind and we express it in our praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.